Hello. This is the Fight Back Podcast, hosted by exercise scientist Georgia Berry. Here, you'll find a series of honest conversations about martial arts and mental health. My guests and I explore the statement that every martial artist has heard. Martial arts saved me. How and why do combat sports save people? Listen to find out. Before you get into today's episode, I have a really important favor to ask you. So you know how we've worked out that martial arts seem to be able to save lives? Well, I want to work out how we can do that on a global scale. So I'm hosting an international conference to uncover what is best practice for trauma-informed martial arts so that we can create an evidence-based therapeutic tool. After this conference, I'm going to be able to take this document to government, lobby for funding, and create training programs to upskill more people as trauma-informed martial arts instructors. This is going to mean that trauma-informed martial arts become accessible around the world to those who need them most. It's really, really important work that I'm doing, and you can help. So please... Pause this episode, jump into the show notes, and check out the GoFundMe page that I've linked. If you can donate, that is amazing. If you're unable to donate, please share the page to your social media. Both of those things really, really help the cause, and you could save someone's life by gifting them the gift of martial arts. Okay, so I'll see you back here in a minute. Go do that, and then we'll get into today's episode. Everyone, welcome to the Fight Back podcast. We are here today with Jenny Valentish, who is the author of a new book called Everything Harder Than Everyone Else, which is how we met. Jenny is an amateur Muay Thai fighter and a journalist who somehow, we're going to talk about how, got interested in why some people seem to really like pain. (laughs) Jenny, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Georgia. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What is this book about? It's about people who go full tilt all the time, sort of people who dance around the void um, and and people who push their bodies specifically in different ways. And the reason I wrote it was the previous book was an addiction memoir, but also lots of research around addiction. And um, I was thinking about the weird fact that there's a certain breed of person who takes a lot of drugs, almost like an Olympic sport. Uh, when they quit, uh, they they often turn to something like marathon running or ultra marathon running, you know, so they've gone from one extreme pursuit to another. And so I was quite interested in that sense of endurance and, um, you know, why the need, what's going on in the brain that you automatically want to sort of leap from one thing. And then when that's taken away, straight into something else. Um, so basically, each chapter is based around one main interviewee. And then a few others sort of circulating around them. So I've got people like um, performance artists like Stellark, who is an Australian performance artist. Who, he's done things like really horrific things to his body. Like uh, he's got an ear or, you know, the shape of an ear grafted onto his arm. Um, he's done lots of flesh hook suspension. He's uh, like sewn his eye eyelids and his lips together. Um, he's had loads of fats and nerve endings removed and put in a blender on display. So he, he's done all those kind of things. And then there's Crackerjack, the mad bastard, who's a, a deathmatch wrestler. Um, so deathmatch is where you, you know, you've, you've been held onto barbed wire and tacks and stapled. His favorite thing is the staple gun. So uh, when I interviewed him, he handed me the staple gun so I could staple him in the head. Um Orion Starr, who is a, a, a porn star who does really quite extreme degrading acts, or she used to, but is also an MMA fighter um, with Bellator. So it's to her, it's like two sides of the same coin, you know, um, receiving pain and dishing out pain or punishment, if you like. Um, and Christine Ferreira, who's a, a, a bare knuckle boxer from Vegas, who who basically had this history as a um, a street kid, a street fighter, and then found sort of some discipline through Muay Thai and then bare knuckle boxing, but 
had this enormous sort of ego protecting her that she had to overcome first. So they're all different kinds of people who were picked because of their willingness to really delve deep into why they think it is they do the things they do. Was there much consensus? Yeah, there are lots of themes that uh, came up. Um, I mean, it's probably no surprise to learn that childhood plays a massive part here. Um, So often there would be quite a chaotic upbringing, whether it be parental drug use or neglect or um, or bullying or or some kind of um, emotional adversity that then has the persons realise that they can sort of almost use that as a drive and use that to be able to explore physical pain where others wouldn't or couldn't, you know. Did you talk to anyone... Probably not because you only spoke to people who were like into pain. But what do you think makes that split where some people experience that kind of childhood and never want to go near pain again and, you know, turn to other things or, you know, what makes the difference between someone who experiences pain in childhood and is drawn to it and then someone who experiences pain and avoids it? Um, First of all, I wouldn't say they were into pain exactly. Just they have a capacity for it and they've realised that and therefore they can do things that other people might not. But um, there is a really interesting study that one of my interviewees told me about that became quite key. Um, it was uh, the person who told me about it was uh, a strongman athlete, Camilla Fognolo, who mm-hmm. uh, she read about this uh, 2016 study from the UK about super elite athletes. So the kind of athletes who are winning gold at Olympic level and then elite athletes um and it was found uh, that every single one of the super elite athletes and granted it wasn't a huge group I, f- I forget how large it was it was maybe about 20 people but every single one of them had experienced some significant childhood adversity be it you know a really traumatic divorce or sexual abuse physical abuse those kinds of things um but not only that but then sport had come along at a very significant moment for them so either they met a coach or a new mentor or they had some kind of sporting um victory like they they won something and so they had they had this trauma followed fairly closely by this feeling of oh I can do this thing um this is something I'm good at so those two things in very close succession um, put them on a path, if you like. Wow, my brain's just like, because I even when I read it, I didn't think about it like this, but I wonder if you were to try and extract some of that kind of catalyst into somebody's life, it's without doing it to the same extreme degree, which of course you wouldn't wish on to anyone, but it's kind of like things are going not well or there's even hardship like, you know, like, you know, from when you start a new sport, it's really hard. You're mostly getting beat up, beat down. You're not winning in the beginning. You know, very, very rarely does that happen for anyone. And then you have have a win. And I think, you know, in martial arts, that's why you don't see too many people with a long losing record. You know, very rarely do you see anyone with more losses than wins because when they get the win, I think it's like, oh, I did well, you know, then I want to keep going. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, this this very profound thing happened to them just when they needed it. And that's what made them a super elite athlete, ultimately. Yeah, it's fascinating. And what about you? So did you start Muay Thai before or after you started researching for this book? It was just about before, (laughs) but the ideas were circulating. It's, It's These things with writers do tend to be quite chicken and egg. (laughs) like which came first but I was thinking about it and I started training just before so just over two years ago Mm -hmm. and uh for me it was um I'm quite I like a bit of argy-bargy and uh you know a bit bit of a knock-around girl I don't know if that's a term I should use uh maybe it's got a double meaning but um also I thought it would be good for anger management um I could not have been more wrong on that front actually because I just thought, oh, how satisfying to be wailing away on a bag or or on pads. But, of course, only when you've done it for a little while, you 
get into sparring and then you start to think, oh, maybe I should start doing interclubs and then maybe I should compete. And you, as you'll know, that is a path that is a roller coaster of um, triumph, but humiliation more often. You know, so it's it's so, especially when you get into sparring, like you're constantly beset by frustration and feeling maybe betrayed by your trainer and all these kind of uh, tumultuous emotions that make it, uh, for somebody who's um, using it to battle anger management, it can actually be, it can actually make you feel very angry a lot of the time. And then hopefully that's, a le- you know, these are a bunch of lessons that you start to learn and um, you do become the ego-free, of course, this hasn't happened to me, but an ego-free, you know, fighter who is purely uh, all about the technical skills. Yeah, perhaps that happens <laughs> to some people. <laughs> I love in your book how real the your descriptions are of going through, you know, starting and having this big ego and thinking you're amazing and inspiring with your coach and, like, getting beat up and getting all these leg kicks and, you know, hobbling home or not hobbling home, taking the Uber. I think I think most people have had a, a sort of experience like that where all of a sudden you your perception of yourself changed. And some people come in just in the beginning, you know, thinking they're awful the whole time and then suddenly think the opposite. And then I think some people think, oh, like, I thought I was amazing. Then I <laughs> got beat up a few times and I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, okay. But I also like how you don't shy away from this depiction of fighters as having a big ego, you know, that it, there is a lot of that in there. People who are fighting think they're top shit and that's oftentimes why they're doing well and it's this this whole beast to wrestle with. I love how you pulled that apart, in particular, you know, your story, but then some some of the other fighters in their stories too. I thought it was quite varied, like the different types of fighters' stories that you were telling. Yeah, but as well as each chapter having a different kind of pursuit, whether it be a sport or whatever, each chapter's also got a bit of a theme. And so the fighting chapter was about ego and anger and whether they are actual credible tools for fighting. Because I assumed going into it that they were and they're necessary. Um, And so I wanted to explore that. Like, is it really useful for a fighter to have ego and and rage? Um, Ultimately, I I don't think so. Um, But it does attract people who who have something to prove. If you've um, got into a combat sport as an adult rather than through a childhood route of doing different martial arts and then eventually taking up something like Muay Thai, say, if you've come to it as an adult, then invariably, I think there's a really profound reason for that. And um, I think often that reason, I mean, I was just thinking of some of the people that I've met along the way. Often there's like maybe a history of domestic violence in their family or um, of sexual abuse or, or something that has made them not want to feel vulnerable anymore and want to feel uh, invincible and bulletproof. And so, unfortunately, what goes hand in hand with that is having an ego to protect yourself. Um, and that's that's the really the the purpose that our ego serves. It's to is to protect the vulnerability within us. And so then you have a separate battle, not just with your opponent or your sparring partner or whatever, but with yourself trying to keep that ego in check. So the whole chapter is really looking at that kind of um, paradox. And so I talked to a few people about it. I talked to um, Eugene S. Robinson, who's this awesome commentator on sport in the US, who who wrote the book Fight. I think, was it? I think it's called Fight Everything You Wanted to Know About Ass Kicking But Don't Want to Get Your Ass Kicked For by Asking, something like that. Um, and then I interviewed Christine Ferreira, who I mentioned earlier, a bare knuckle boxer from Vegas, and um, also charted the kind of uh, dynamic between me and my trainer as we battled with my ego. Um, so it ended up being quite a, a long, interesting chapter to write. Yeah, I think Christine's like a really that far out but good example, good, I don't know if good is the word, but of the kind of person that you hear in the gym who's always like, oh, fighting saved my life, it kept me out of jail. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're mostly speaking hypothetically, you know, like if I had have continued on the path I was on, I would have ended up in jail. But Christine was in jail and 
specifically used fighting as a way to not end up back in jail after she left. And I think how some of that was how she seemed to me to have felt quite institutionalised. You know, she liked the structure. Um, but then also the, the physical transformation of transforming herself from being, I think she said, you know, she was kind of fat and she had to like really get in shape. And you hear a lot of that from from people who talk about how they physically transform themselves into this like can't be fucked with kind of person. How much do you think of that is the physical transformation? Like the, how much is mental and how much is the person physically transforming? Ah, uh, I think it was Plato who, you know, who talks about the relationship between sort of mind, body and 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 soul. But um definitely uh for me, you know, feeling my body change and become more sort of uh sinewy and tough had such a profound effect on my confidence and well-being and the way I carry myself to the world. I mean, it it starts to impact every other area of your life. Um, so I think it's, it's really, uh, it's really important. Um, God, I don't know what else to say about that really, but I mean, even like say Henry Rollins has written an amazing essay about, cause he does weightlifting. So he, he did an amazing essay about, um, the iron and, and it's just about the profound effects that for him as a young boy, he used to get picks on all the time at school. It's hard to imagine now, because if you know who I mean, the singer who used to front Black Flag, you know, he's he's a real tough unit. Um, but he used to get picks on all the time. And this one teacher uh, noticed that he had no parental support and he was getting bullied at school. And uh, he got Henry to start lifting weights. And he said, I'm going to keep coming up to you in the corridor when you least expect it and punch you in the stomach. Um, but, and we'll know when you're ready. And so he used to do that. Like Henry Rollins would be walking through the corridor at school, co- holding all his books, and his teacher would suddenly punch him in the guts and Henry would drop his books everywhere and all the kids would be like, what the hell's going on? Um, and Henry wasn't allowed to look in the mirror uh, until the teacher told him he was allowed to. And so he did this and he used to pump weights every every day after school. And finally the teacher said, you can look in the mirror. And he did. And he was this transformed young man. So, yeah, I mean, seeing yourself transforms just shows the amount of work and effort that you've put into something and it has an all-round all-round effects on your well-being and and your confidence yeah I think it's a great distinction to make because we do often talk about the negative sides of that you know that people become obsessed with the aesthetic that comes with being an athlete or a fighter or weightlifting or or that the positivity of that only comes from the mental side of you know wanting to stop the set you know, when you're lifting weights, you think about your muscle feels tired. You don't want to do another rep, but you do another rep and that it's from this sense of accomplishment that comes from, oh, I finished the set. But it can also be the sense of accomplishment from, you know, I am physically different and I identify as physically different now too. When I think there's another distinction that comes, which you might have started using or you might not have, where you introduce yourself as a fighter or, you know, in your book, I'm sure people would introduce themselves as what any of their other titles might be. And that becomes a really big part of your identity that becomes really important. Yeah. Identity is, I explore that a lot in this book, though, because that's a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I guess feeling like you identify as a fighter, which I, I don't particularly yet, having had one amateur fight. <laughs> but, of course, that would bring you an immense sense of pride and um but the flip side is um, we can tie our identity to our pursuit to such a degree that when we can't do it anymore for whatever reason, injury, age, whatever it is, you can have a complete identity crisis. I mean, this is a huge problem for athletes because athletes have a, a short shelf life in terms of their career. Um, so the vast bulk of you know sports psychology is based around how to draw out these other facets of your personality in your life so that you're not just the person that you've made all these huge sacrifices for. Um, And, you know, it's understandable because you've got people relying on you, you've got a coach, maybe you've got a team, um, and you've put so many hours and all your money into this and your parents have helped you if you're a child. Um, But to to just be that athlete is an incredibly dangerous thing. So that's something that comes up a lot in this book, the the crises that people I've interviewed have gone through, like Cracker Jack the wrestler when he he um what did he do? Oh he had a brain injury. Um 
because in the ring he got hit three times, four times over the head with a DVD player, um, which, you know, was under arrangement. Uh, he knew it was going to happen, but he, he managed to get a brain injury, which put him out of the game for a few years. And then he just had this absolute existential crisis of who am I if I'm not Crackerjack? You know, who who I basically invented in, in his late teens, I think he was. So for years and years and years, he'd been this person, not just to himself, but to his whole community. And, and it was an alter ego that allowed him to really blow off steam and sort of, you know, go around the ring screaming at people. It was basically bloodletting. Uh, it was hurling himself around. And he didn't have this outlet for himself anymore. And he didn't have this identity anymore. And it became... Uh, a really depressing time for him. Thankfully, he's now coming out the other side because he's done so much rehab that he's now back in the ring and he had his first match just a few weeks ago. Um, but that was an incredibly dark time for him. So we talked a lot about the danger of tying your identity to one thing. Yeah, I love the super cliche, super corny, but the quote, you're a human being, not a human doing. And <laughs> when you then relate that to something like fighting or any of these kind of pursuits, but for me, I get I think a lot about fighting where you're on this really thin blade that it feels like you're balancing on where on the one hand, you know, you do have so much of your identity tied in with it, but you also know that it can't be forever. You know you're going to get older, but not even that. You know that your brain can only take so many knocks. Mm. Um, and even being really deep in the community where it becomes normalised to have brain trauma, I think you, there's either it's quite at the front of your brain or it's the back of your brain thinking at some point I'm going to have to stop this and then who am I and what else do I have going on where everybody faces this to some extent where some people tie themselves to, you know, I'm a a journalist or whatever they are and then that's all that I am and their identity becomes too not multifaceted in that way but I think for fighters it becomes even more important. It's like it's a really interesting conversation. And you've obviously thought about this early on because you've come up with all sorts of different things you know you, you've got um we've well, mainly you've got the fight back project but you you've got your podcast skills you've got now the ability to to teach and to nurture and train so already you've, you've kind of put these different pathways into your life that you can sort of take off on any one of them if need be yeah I think I got lucky by getting really interested in sports science early on and seeing that and even working with some athletes and working with a lot of professors who worked with athletes and realizing yeah. the the sort of need to do something like that but I think for everybody too you know the pandemic was really hard for me um because I don't like doing things that aren't exercise based and I bet lots of people had this but it's like you can only run so many hours in a day and if I'm not really needing to do a lot of meal prep because I'm at home I'm not going to the gym so I don't have travel time and I can only hit the bag so much then what do I do when I'm not <laughs> when I'm not being active that yeah be it's, it's interesting really difficult because it's interesting you say that because uh, you probably noticed, but loads of people from Fight World during 2020, during the lockdowns, became quite vocal about, um, let's say, conspiracy theories or at least, you know, sentiment against uh, politicians. Um, and uh, in part, it might be because, you know, you're talking about people perhaps who are um, uh, kind of outliers and thinking and fringe dwellers but also I think it's because there was this period where they had just had nothing to do and this the usual the gyms were shut sometimes they owned the gyms and all this energy that they would have been expending normally um they couldn't do so you know some people during lockdown would have had office jobs that they could just do from home people who whose entire careers are around being active it's kind of no wonder that they did go down this route of uh, conspiracy theory and being very outspoken about their beliefs around the pandemic. For sure, for sure. I, I mean, I myself, I just tried all these different hobbies, and I was like, all right, I'm going I'm to buy a saxophone and a, <laughs> like timetable in all of these things to keep my brain as busy as possible. And and in the end, I think working with clients on mindfulness, I kind of realized how hypocritical I was being in always needing to be busy and doing something, and I kind of. You know, I spent quite a bit of time trying to work through how to just sit and be 
and I can now watch TV for like an hour. So that's a. It's, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm impressed. Yeah, I jump up every five minutes and hit pause because of something I should be doing in the in the other rooms. It's just ridiculous. I completely understand that. Yeah, that was me. Like I said, I worked hard to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, another commonality of all my interviewees in this book, which should come as no surprise, is they're all very restless, stroke naturally agitated. <laughs> so. Whatever they do that's involving them to push their body to extremes is bringing some um, pressure relief. relief. And um, there are also people who feel the constant need to kind of pressure test themselves as well. Um, almost like, you know, if you've, been through, if you've been through rough things in the past, uh, I think sometimes you want to keep testing yourself in the future to test your mettle and test that you're up to further challenges. Um, so sometimes the pursuits that people I was interviewing were following it just seemed like they were constantly making sure they were still tough enough and that can kind of cross over with the idea of what psychologists call traumatic reenactment as well which is when if you've been through something as a child as an adult you keep putting yourself in a similar kind of situation um, and it's sort of in order to uh, try and get a more positive result this time around you know you couldn't control things back then but now you can control the situation I think that counts for a, a lot of people that I interviewed for this book including me really I mean um, in my last book I talked about some quite traumatic things in childhood and now I'm basically choosing a sport which is self-harm you know <laughs> it's uh yeah constantly getting knocks to the head and bruises to the legs and uh it's um it's it, there's definitely something in that do you think that that is why you're training now? So you mentioned before you're not sure if you want to fight again. What what is keeping you in training? If anger management or anger outlet is what brought you and you've realised doesn't exist <laughs> or, or doesn't exist to the degree that I think you're thinking. I think pads are still incredibly cathartic and I get a little bit like twitchy if I haven't had some sort of an outlet and people will know. <laughs> um, but what what's keeping you in it now? Uh, the the pure enjoyment of training is mm-hmm. what's going to keep me doing it. Um, like learning, always be, always learning. I've never done any sport before, before I took this up. Um, I'd never really even been to the gym. I mean, I'd go once and then get a membership, get talked into a membership and then never go again. So I had no, just the, the very feeling of moving my body in these unusual ways that I wouldn't normally move it in. You could feel your brain pathways squelching with this new information and really being hungry for it so that still happens I mean now it's less about the movements and now it's sort of moved on to trying to read other people better and Mm. um faint more uh but but yeah that enjoyment of learning and sort of the pursuit of mastery is what's keeping me going now but I mean the reason I might I said I might not fight again is so I had my first amateur fight uh, a Valma fight at Melbourne Pavilion in March and I really really enjoyed it I lost but I was just I was genuinely happy for my opponent because she was lovely and also my main thing was to get into the ring as somebody who'd never done any sport before go through three rounds do the best I could and I felt so high afterwards and I was absolutely 100% going to keep that going and do more and then I had this sort of inevitable crash and I thought oh this is probably just a phase I've heard people go through this and now it's a month later and uh well I just feel that um for me being 46 years old I'm never going to be a pro fighter so basically my options are to just keep doing amateur 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 and you still have to put all the same effort in you know you still have to do the weight cuts you still have to travel in and do you know in in the lead up to a fight five days a week really hardcore training for me I live in the country so that's uh it takes about six hours out of my day and with all the petrol and the pts and that it was costing in the lead up to the fight 500 bucks a week it's completely unsustainable totally unsustainable and as you were mentioning earlier with the the worries about head injuries I've only had I'd say three minor concussions but you even a minor one could be the one you know um and so it just doesn't really make sense. I didn't want to be that journalist who does a thing, writes about it and never does it again. I was absolutely 100% sure I'd keep fighting. But when I look at it logically, it's just completely nuts. And you know, So at present, I'm thinking just train for the sheer enjoyment. Help the people who are in their fight camps 
and you know further down the road maybe if you feel like doing it again do it again yeah I think I would love to see in Muay Thai that the the distinction wasn't so strong between competitors and non-competitors in terms of being a practitioner you know like and I, and I would say it's because they have a belt system, so there's still things for people to work towards. But take jiu-jitsu, for example, where someone who trains jiu-jitsu but has never competed, will never compete, but is like what we'll call like a hobbyist, like a recreational purple belt, really good. Like if, if the fight starts from sitting down, will smash, smash any person from off the street, um, but never wants to compete. And they will still really identify with being a jiu-jitsu practitioner as part of who they are. Whereas somebody who's done Muay Thai for, like I've got some friends who have done Muay Thai for years, like five years. They're really good on pads, like beautiful technicians. They even like some of them spar, some of them don't, but they will not identify as being someone who does Muay Thai. They will maybe if someone's like, well, what do you do for exercise? They'll say like, oh, sometimes I go to the gym and do some kickboxing classes. They'll never talk about themselves in that kind of way. And I would love to see that change because it's not just about getting in the ring. Like it's, it takes a lot of discipline to go to training all the time, to drop your ego, to there's, you know, there's lots of really great things that come out of training without fighting. It'd be cool to see that change. It's probably imposter syndrome, isn't it? Because you, yeah, you can't say I've done I mean, people in gyms all the time say to each other, and I do this to people if I go to a new gym, have you done an amateur? Have you done a pro? You know, you're interested because you want to know and you want to know what it was like. Um, but, but yeah, interesting what you say about, yeah, well, there's no belt system because that is that does make it a bit tricky sometimes because that, I think that's why I'm floundering now. Like, well, what am I going to, what am I aiming for then? I always need a goal in whatever I'm doing. What's my goal now? Um so that's making it really hard for me to be as motivated as, as I was before. Um, if there is something else I could aim for within Muay Thai, that would keep me much happier right now. Yeah, it's a great argument for the singlet system, which some gyms do use. They have like coloured singlets that they yeah. go through, and it seems to be very black and white. There's not too many people who are grey on that who are like, oh, I can see the benefit, but we're not going to do it. It's like that's ridiculous there's no belts in Muay Thai why would you ever do that like yeah all people who are you know kind of for it and having gone through this is my second time as a white belt um doing jiu-jitsu and so this will be my second time going through a belt ranking system like I can see the benefit for for getting belts and stripes and you know mm-hmm. gold, gold stars for adoration but you know rather what we you need get from validation your- we no. need to be told well done and look you've got a, a ribbon you know, we need that. Well, I mean, most people do. If you don't, you're some kind of psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, you've got most trainers who like, well, you've trained with Tui, who's my trainer, who who's will only very rarely will say anything positive. Doesn't mean that he's not meaning positive things. You know, if he tells <laughs> If he's telling me that I punch like a grandma, I, I take that as what he's really saying is your kicks are fantastic. <laughs> yeah I so my trainer is um Nick Mann mm-hmm. uh although because he doesn't work out of a, a kickboxing fight gym I do sometimes go see other trainers too um but yeah his style is very well you, you actually kind of never know which Nick you're gonna get <laughs> sometimes I'll, I'll get compliments and I grow about two feet tall but he comes from that he used to uh, training MMA across the Philippines and um, various parts of Asia and his training as a young man it was tough love style you know you never got a compliment um, so but my argument to him is yeah but some people respond much better to compliments I mean you know maybe maybe fighters are generally the sort of people who weren't told enough as kids, I'm proud of you. And maybe even they get that kind of compliment. They want to really please you and try harder. That's my, um, and that's what I want to do. I want to, if, if, if somebody praises me when I'm training, I'm like, brilliant. And I'll, I'll work so much better. Absolutely. And I think, I think, I mean, positive psychology tells us that that's something that works. And I do wonder, yeah, just Muay Thai fighters or people, you know, without Muay Thai fighters, without a specific goal, Maybe there is some benefit in that too in becoming just this really great intrinsically motivated person who's saying, you know, despite not having a goal, despite not having a belt, despite not getting the gold star, I'm going to do it for me, you know, become that 
that kind of a person, which very difficult to become, but there could be something positive to be said for that for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to come back to the book a bit. There's some there's so many great quotes from it, but I pulled some that I really liked that resonated and that I think will sit with a lot of other listeners on this show. So here are some, and I just want to get your comments on them, what you think they're about. Yeah. So my face full of stitches seem better than having my heart full of stitches. And I see that for a lot of people. Yeah. So that was from Richie Hardcore, who was um, a Muay Thai champion in New Zealand. And he's now a coach and he's also a motivational speaker. Um, and he basically had an upbringing where his father was um, violent and uh, had a big drink problem. And uh, one, one really positive thing he said his father did was take him to a uh, taekwondo class when he was young. And there, Richie found this kind of sense of belonging. There was stability. There was structure. Um, you could keep coming back every week and you'd, you'd, have, you'd know that you would get a little bit better each time, you know. So it was this kind of measurable, quantifiable thing. And uh, he, of course, grew better and better at it. And eventually he was able to um, get the upper hand with grown men when he was only in his teens. Um, but he was just observing that, um, you know, that, that it can feel better to to feel pain for a sport than to feel completely vulnerable. Is what he's saying. Countless action films, this is you, countless action films have taught dweebs that martial arts can help you protect yourself and save the day. Yeah. Um, actually, I was making the comparison between uh, martial arts movies and mm-hmm. boxing movies. They're, it's very pronounced. So um, uh, like during the, the explosion of Hong Kong martial arts films in the 60s and 70s, the plot lines tended to be actually political, but they were still concerned with the underdog overthrowing the oppressor. And then, of course, that went through to more sort of commercial karate kid type movies where it was the the, the sort of the nerd, uh, you know, overcoming the bullies, but also doing good along the way. There was always that kind of path as well. Whereas boxing movies tend to sort of document the grizzled down and out person at the end of their rope. Um, and from the wrong side of the tracks, you know, there's um, obviously Rocky, but there's dating right back to the 30s. You've got things like the champ and the setup, and uh, they tend to be, you know, someone's last chance at redemption in the ring. So, yeah, it was just about um, the difference really between martial arts and boxing in that sense. It's funny, um, I had a coach many, many years ago when I was doing karate, who I remember was like very upset at how this had played out in that karate gyms, because of movies and for other reasons, had marketed themselves as being like anti-bullying programs. And so that the kind of person you got a lot of the time through them was somebody who had been bullied and so wasn't naturally athletic. And he was really upset. He was like, you know, our sport could be so much better, but we just have all these people who aren't actually athletic coming in. And then when they go to compete, it's just not athletic people versus not athletic people. (laughs) And like all of the good people have gone to football. (laughs) That made me think of that. I was thinking that. There's probably some truth in that. I was like, I was like, ah. Yeah, that, that's me also right here. Can't, can't catch a ball. Yeah, if, if you think of on the internet, um, there are a few, there's a few key characters who who talk about martial arts. There's um, Master Ken. Are you familiar mm-hmm. with Master Ken? Yes, yeah, so he's kind of, um, it's an actor called Matt Page who plays this uh, guy who has created his own martial art and he's this egomaniac um who basically puts his puts his students in constant jeopardy and gives them these stupid moves to do that will supposedly get them out of a street fight or out of a gunfight. Um and they're always like excessively violent. And then you've got the guy who runs Bullshido. Um anyway, they've both spoken publicly about how they were picked upon at school, like one of them had a cleft palate and the other one was just quite small. Um, and, and they were just constantly being bullied. And so that's why they um, pursued the sport they did. But they both became incredibly good at it. They, I mean, they're multiple black belts and things. Yeah, it's one distinction that I don't think we've made explicitly on the show yet. Like when we talk about 
what what it is about martial arts that might be different to other sports in becoming an outlet for changing or saving somebody's life. Well, you know, getting obsessed with table tennis could have the same impact <laughs> in terms of keeping you off drugs or something like that. Like it could potentially, if it's something that you get obsessed about, it forces you to clean up your life. But what are the traits of martial arts that are quite different to other sports? And I think that that's one of them, that being able to defend yourself, not just being able to be good at a sport and that that does attract bully kids a lot of the time is is quite a differentiating factor for martial arts compared to sport. Yeah, I mean, you don't necessarily have to be muscle-bound to be able to be good at martial, martial arts. I mean, you think of jiu-jitsu, for instance, it's all about using your weight cleverly, isn't it? She said, never having done it. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you just need to have the technique um, and keep coming back and doing it in order to be able to have, to to be able to overthrow somebody who's much brawnier than you. Yeah, exactly. So we we we've spoken about it quite a lot, but you know, in the book you talk about how Ronda Rousey said, you know, martial arts saved her life and she's referencing how her father had died and she needed something that wasn't swimming so that she didn't have so much time to think about it and escape. And you know that um Camilla, who was the bare knuckle boxer, was doing it. Or Christine, pardon me. Um, Christine was doing it to, you know, stay out of jail and that, like fighting saved her life in that way. How else do you think that fighting saves lives? In my case, um, it has become my top priority, which means that things that are less healthy have been pushed down the hierarchy of things. So, for instance, um, uh, like I used to have an addiction issue and I, I quit. Uh, drugs and alcohol for eight years Um, and now I do drink but it's completely managed by the fact that training is my number one priority so um, he could say save my life if we're using it kind of more metaphorically in that way in that it's completely redesigned my life and made it more healthy and positive. Yeah you hear that a lot like my partner will talk about that too there just becomes this time when you realise, like, I can't stay up late because I've got training tomorrow. Like, if you're at something, you're like, I can't drink tonight because I'm going to go to training tomorrow. And you know how much it's going to suck to go to training hungover. It's terrible. It's the worst. Anyone who tries to be like, oh, it's cathartic. It's really, like, it's a good way to sweat it out. Yeah. And, I mean, it sometimes means that, you know, doing a sport or any kind of pursuit like the ones in the book, they can be super selfish because it's all about you. I mean, they usually are. They do make you a selfish person. But at the same time, you know, now suddenly somebody's very, very determined that they get their eight hours sleep minimum and that they're eating well um, and, you know, that they're not going out and getting wasted. And so it, it's inc- it's an incredible it's an incredible thing for the individual, maybe not so much for the people around them, but pursuing a sport is just a fantastic thing for someone to do to really like get themselves firing on all cylinders. For sure. And I think you really understand who the true friends are in your life too, as cliched as that sounds. Like if you stop going to the parties every weekend or you stop going out with your friends and then they're not willing to chat or like come to your fights or, you know, go for a coffee or something that's more within your wheelhouse now just to hang out. If your only friends actually in the context of like that other lifestyle that maybe you had, then suddenly you realise that these people like don't care about you and you can kind of cleanse them from your life and yeah. spend more time with people who do. And oftentimes that becomes the people who you bond with through the gym. Yeah. Whether or not it's also because you're doing the same things all the time, just like you were in past lives or not. But they tend to be, or I found, the kind of people that show up for you in other areas of your life too you just have such a strong bond. That's been an unexpected bonus of taking up Muay Thai, actually, is a new friendship circle. Not saying the old one's gone, Mm. but to be hanging out with people who I probably wouldn't have crossed paths with before, because you do have your own bubble of, right, so for me, my my kind of stereotypical mate would be someone who is in the music industry, for instance, because I spent a lot of my career in it. Um, So now I'm, I'm sort of hanging out with people who come from all different kind of careers and the only thing we've got in common is that we love this sport and it's just so healthy like it's such a good thing to mix with people from different walks of life <laughs> it sounds really 
weird to say that because of course but we don't do we you know so it's it's been fantastic hanging out at different gyms and and making those new friendships yeah it's the one sport uh, well there probably are other examples but I always contrast it to like the common sports people in Australia play so like netball football where in those sports you're in a team and you're grouped by gender and age and you know people who are you know like kind of very similar to you typically yeah and you don't have any crossover whereas in a combat sport like you can hold pads for a guy you could be you know 30 years difference in age but you're all in the same class training together so you do get this crazy crossover where you can have friends who are up age down age across genders races you know it's fantastic I get so curious about if if I'm sort of if I go to I go to different gyms for sparring classes because as I said my trainer doesn't work out of a fight gym and I get so curious about the people I'm meeting there I'm holding pads for and stuff because we're all in this sort of uniform if you like of shorts and singlets so I can't read them like I can't read who they are by what they're wearing and so I'm just like what do they do for a living you know who are their mates like what else do they do it's uh yeah it's fascinating it is, you know, some people you, you don't know for ages and then you know that, like, the, the reason why they don't compete, uh, even though they're so good, is because they're a surgeon and they can't go through the water loading process of cutting weight because they can't go and pee that many times during a surgery or, like, all these crazy stories like this. You're like, wow, I would never, I would never. That's a great excuse. Mm, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I don't think that person will be listening to this show. <laughs> All right, your book is out now. So if people are interested in reading more of these stories, and I will say like they really do read in the kind of way that we've been chatting about them, just very conversationally, like it's such a casually written book about such a like intense topic. Is is you can put that as my thing. It's really casually written, like really easy to read, but it's about these really heavy topics. I think you've got a really good gift for writing like that. Thank you. Yeah, I wanted it to be fun. Like it was really fun for me to do because the last book was super heavy. I mentioned it was about addiction and basically women's trauma and stuff. So while while we have touched on those things in our conversation and they are in the book, like it's not sitting in that dark place. You know, there's tons of humour and kind of what the hell moments. So it was just so much fun to read, like it to, to write. It completely took over my life in this kind of nutty way. Loved it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Where can people find it if they want to get their hands on it, read it? Basically anywhere. I mean, at present, you'd be able to find it in most bookshops. Mm-hmm. Um, you could find it in most online vendors, you know, Amazon, obviously, Booktopia, all those kind of ones. And um, I'm going to have a bunch of launches. So if you could just you could just Google my name and launch probably and you'd see where I'm going to have the launches. And if people want to follow you on social media? Yeah, um, that'd be great. Um, I mainly really use Instagram, so it's Jenny Valentish underscore public. Perfect. We will put the link to your Instagram and um, I was going to say some local Melbourne. I might actually do that. I want. I don't know demographic-wise where most people are listening from, so I'm going to put some local Melbourne bookshops in the link to this that you can go to first rather than buying it online. If you're overseas... I don't know if you would have to buy it online. Yeah, um, so I've got a UK publisher and a US publisher, but I couldn't tell you about the bookshop, so it might be easiest to head to Amazon. <laughs> yeah, could could be. Or just, yeah, check out Jenny online. You can shoot her a message if you want to get your hands on this book. I think, yeah, it'd be a really fun read. And, yeah, is there anything you would like to say to anyone, any like asterisks you want to put on the book or just any messages to people listening to a podcast like this? Uh, I would just like to say that I, I really think your podcast is very important, Georgia. Like, you know, we met because I wrote an article about what, what you do for The Guardian and uh, I think it was The Guardian. Um, it was. Yeah, good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I definitely think that, martial arts have such an important role to play for people who've experienced trauma who've experienced violence against themselves I mean it's the whole feeling of mastery or or the aim of mastery is so empowering and so uh does so much for your confidence more than something like you know 
a self-defense class could it's uh it's about a more holistic approach to lifting yourself up so i love what you do and i've loved listening to the other guests thank you have you thought of something to be grateful for today what was it i'm grateful for the amazing women that train with me at the fight back project I'm grateful for Nari and the beautiful song Shape Me heard at the beginning and end of every episode. And I'm grateful for you for listening to this show and helping martial arts keep saving lives. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you'd like to leave me a review to help more people find the show, that's a bonus. shapes me but me don't gotta tell you what my name is i don't gotta explain it walk in the room hear a boom erupting like i'm famous i'm here shedding shells i'm shameless half in nothing no complacence walk too many tight ropes with no hope so i became this poster they hold over all the heads of trauma holders you don't need to know my history i move boulders atlas shrug cause i lifted the weight above his shoulders no pretense of defense move first like chess soldiers this goes deeper than empowerment cause i'm the one that power it physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring if i can't change the scenery at least i change perspectives no longer isolated but elevated and selective darkest places become beautiful spaces this is where rage meets patience meets power meets gracious meets we're so glad you came in the feeling is contagious when you the walking impact of intended bad intentions when you the manifest enough collecting all they tensions you the soul and body hold it all and still remember but i'm a work in progress testament to all contenders forgot what it was like to have control over self forgot what it was like to be the one in charge forgot in my reflection i could see all my wealth forgot that with my bare hands i break all these bars barriers and obstacles they can't cage me they can't chronicle all my experiences and reduce them to appearances when i was truly beaten gave myself clearances to fall down mess up and get myself back up i'm not looking for clovers because i don't believe in luck damn you were badass i heard them say it clearly why thank you very much i know now i'm not weary of what's next for me because i expect to see growth like i was planted watered fed and bloomed to be the positivity and accountability Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin Boundaries, I know them well, take a breath and meditate Who is she? I know her well, now I get to open gates One, two, one, two, I don't need your permission And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition To know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing And everything I do, that's me making decisions It's truly underrated, the value of self-worth Forgot that I was rich from the moment of my birth A penny for my thoughts, no really, you can't afford it You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it, huh?